0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue episode number 495. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Alison Jones. Allison has been a pioneer in publishing since 1992, from her days as an editor with Chambers Harrop and Oxford University Press to Director of Innovation Strategy at Macmillan, before setting up Practical Inspiration Publishing in 2014. Today, Alison helps business leaders write and publish exceptional business and self-development books. And she also champions the value of both reading and writing in business. She's a podcaster, and author of the number one Amazon bestseller. This book means business. Her new book, coming out mid-December 2022, is a treat. Exploratory writing, everyday magic for life and work. We discuss in this podcast how writing can be such an amazing tool to figure out challenges and connect dots. We also look at some of the practical elements and exercises to create the right space to write. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. And if you do have a moment, please go and drop in a rating. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Alison Jones. Hey. You betcha. Um, well, it's so fun to be nerdy and weedy about writing. You've been in the publishing business since 1992, I was reading. You have your own publishing company. And uh, although I I didn't really want to date you in that date, per se, how would you describe the state of publishing today? It has gone through quite the rinse, repeat and wash.
1: Oh, yeah. So I've been hearing about the death of the book pretty much since the day I walked in my first day as an editorial assistant in 1990, 1992. Um, It's funny, isn't it? You know, if you put a kind of a a book, a CD-ROM, and a video cassette in front of somebody in in sort of you know the mid 90s and said which would you put money on of these of surviving you probably wouldn't have picked the book but it's amazing how resilient the print format has been and we've got lots of additional formats now we've got you know obviously digital audio we've got ebooks and so on but they coexist they have different affordances and yeah, the print book seems to go from strength to strength. It's almost the thinginess of it that that gives it its value today. It's something you can gift. You can give. It, you can sit it on your desk. It furnishes a room really well. You know, all that kind of stuff. So it's not easy the publishing world. It never has been, but yeah, you wouldn't want to write it off just yet,
0: so to speak. Um, what I hear is that there are about a million titles uh, being published every year, and so it feels rather daunting. Uh, as a writer uh, clearly the business model itself has adjusted to allow for the fact that maybe 25% will be audiobook another percentage are, are electronic versions kindle and the like and the rest are in paperback sometimes hardback but what is the what is the encouragement for an author to write in such a sea of you know millions of other books already coming out
1: yeah, it's a great question, and honestly, I I think there's a place for asking yourself: Should I write a book? Because there's lots of other ways of getting your message across, and mm. it's it's not easy. In a sense, you know, it's easier than it ever was to publish a book, but it's as hard as it ever was to write a good one. And mm. there's enough bad ones out there, you know. You don't need to add to that. Mm. Um, why would you do it? I think, it, as I say, the um, the value of the book, the cultural value of it, is still so huge, and even if nobody were ever to read it, the work that you do as an author of clarifying your thinking, articulating it, structuring it in a way that allows you to put it in a book, honestly, that in itself, it's its one of those benefits that people don't think about beforehand. But nearly every author I have worked with has said that it was one of the biggest benefits to them, because once you can articulate how you do things, the model, mm. the way you see the world, the way you work with people – That intellectual property goes into every aspect of your business. So as a business person, there's huge value in doing it, if if only to create intellectual property in your business. But in terms of the book itself, it almost becomes a form of currency in the business. And if you're speaking, Mm. if you're running workshops, you get this wonderful blend of, you know, you're in the room with people and there's an energy and immediacy, a kind of real experiential dimension to that. But then you leave the room. And if they have a book, then they're kind of taking away a little bit of you. And those two work together
0: really well, I think. Yeah, souped up business card.
1: No, I, I think it's, it's more than that. I, you know, it's it's not just here's my here's my book. Do you want to work with me? It I, I think you want to be really thinking about how the two work together so that you create yeah. that that sort of synergistic. Uh, you know, here I am talking to you, working with you. Here's the book that will help you explore these ideas more deeply, remind you of, of the principles. You know, that's how I think of business books, more than just a business card, but a real compliment to the business.
0: No, surely. And and in your first book was called The This Book Means Business. Clever ways to plan and write a book that works harder for your business. Surely that's the punchline. It's really a, a compliment to who you are and your business as opposed exactly. to just a, a card
1: and and the writing of it as well as this incredibly kind of fertile period which is what I talk about in, in This Book Means Business that lovely kind of growth spiral in there where you're you're not just writing the book and developing yourself but you know in the process of writing you can be reaching out to people building your network mm. you can be doing it in public which is how I started the Extraordinary Business Book Club podcast mm. literally to invite people on and pick their brains you know but it started to build a platform and, and great uh, connections many of whom went on to endorse the book and then link me to mm. other people so there's this great kind of period period while you're writing for goodness sake you know if you're thinking about writing a book don't shut yourself in a room and do it as fast as you can Mm -hmm. use that period you know do your thinking in public get people engaged with your ideas get feedback ask who else should I speak to about this because all of that is business building as well as making a better book
0: oh a hundred percent and um I I take a leaf out of the book uh, of Mitch Joel uh, a friend and podcaster who's written a few great books and has he, he in his podcast he typically invites only authors because the effort of having written a book, even if it's not a bestseller, does that sort of
2: you've yeah.
0: crystallized thoughts you you've made that effort so clearly you have some kind of oh, almost indignation about getting this <laughs> message out. That's a great word.
1: Yeah, there's an energy and there's a, not just a starting energy, but a seeing it through energy. Uh, And um, that's incredibly powerful.
0: So uh, not to take it on me, but I, I did want to share something now that we're getting into this about how books used to be written in the 19th century, at least some of them were, where they were serially published on a weekly basis and, uh, and for this year, Alison, I have endeavoured to do that myself. So I, I'm in the process of writing a a chapter a week published every Thursday at 5pm on Substack. And I can tell you that is a wholly different gig mm-hmm. than writing a book as a book, because I AM publishing, It's it's exposing it constantly. Mm-hmm. And then there's the constant other six days where I'm thinking about it, talking about it, getting comments, it's a wholly different experience. Do you think there's a place for that type of writing? I mean, or am I just me?
1: I think it's a really smart strategy for getting stuff done because you've got that public accountability, you've got a, a consistent beat to that, which is so powerful because you know, write book. That's a huge big thing on your to-do list, isn't it? So it's very easy to let it slip to the bottom, but write a chapter in time for next week's um, Substack deadline. You can do that. That, That's a really specific goal. So if only from a kind of pragmatic perspective, I think that's Mm. a really good idea. And you're doing all that good stuff that we were talking about. You know, you're socializing your ideas you're getting feedback you're mm. forcing yourself to to clarify and articulate and think and get it out and you know often people are so precious about their intellectual property about their ideas mm. you know it it's all about execution and it's all about engagement. So mm. I would say to anybody, you know, who's who's thinking about, oh, I wouldn't want to do that. I want to keep it all and then launch it complete mm. and perfect on an unsuspecting mm. world. Mm. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> get it out there. Start the writing. Building that accountability and visibility. It's it's much more likely you'll get it done and it's much more likely that it'll be readable. <laughs> so I know well, I love I'm hope- that.
0: I'm, I'm hoping so. But um on my first chat with a publisher, it didn't go down well. You're publishing already. So we'll see. Yeah. I've got I've got a community of seven hundred people or seven hundred and fifty or so subscribers, who are being Substack uh, reading already. You know, subscribed, and and then uh, I've also thought about putting a gate. So for the people who don't pay, so there's like an element that won't be published for everybody. But we'll see anyway. That that's a little bit of a side side swoop. I want to get back to explore. Oh, you wanted to say something?
1: Well, it's just that there's an interesting point there about the different dynamics in publishing. So for a traditional publisher, it is all about putting a gate in front of the content. And that's how publishers make their money. They, you know, they sell the content. So for a traditional publisher, it kind of makes no sense to make all the content available and then try and sell the book. But I think that's such an outdated way of looking at it because mm. actually when you write the book, you know, you'll revise that stuff, you'll work it up and everything. Sure. When you think about think about Joe Wicks. You know, he would never have been the success that he has been with those... Um, recipe books, had he not been putting all those recipes up on YouTube. That's yeah. what got him the audience. So mm. I think, you know, we, we really have moved on. And I think publishers need to catch up with the sense that it's not about locking down intellectual property so much anymore as building engagement and an audience. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. yeah and, then, and, you know, back to the experience of the book versus reading online. I mean, reading a 3000 page chapter online is not a piece of cake even if you can get it into Kindle and so on and so forth. And plus, you're never going to sit down and read the whole book in its swoop, whereas a book, which will, of course, be edited differently, um, present itself as a, a different kind of product. We will see if my madness has any reason. Let's get to exploratory writing. Yes, that's... This Everyday Magic for Life and Work, which comes out on the 13th of December 12th for the Kindle. Um, Lovely. I I want to quote something you wrote at the, I think it's at the end of the book. You say, for me, the most magical part of the process is the potential it presents. Tell us about that potential, Alison.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's, um, you know, when you end a book, it's always really hard to end with something that that will stick in people's minds. So nice Mm -hmm. to know that I did that. That's good. (laughs) And yeah, so my argument in exploratory writing is really that we have, only got a small part of what writing can be in our toolkit. We think of writing as communication. We think of it as when we've had an idea, we write it down so that we can, you know, share it with other people. And what exploratory writing is, is the writing that you do before you have a clue where, what you're really thinking. It's the, it's the writing that helps you make the stuff that's going in your head visible to yourself, not to anybody else. And that's really important because that's safety of the blank page. And, and that's what I mean about the, the potential that that represents. When you sit down and you commit to exploratory writing just for yourself, however messy or raw or frankly, awful, it's going to be, <laughs> you don't know what's going to come out. And and that's amazing. And I think, you know, we spend so much time mired in all the stuff that's facing us. There is something symbolically powerful about sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and knowing that right now, for the next six minutes or however long you do, I suggest six minutes, but, you know, it can be whatever you you work for yourself. This is a space that is entirely yours. It can be whatever you need it to be. You've no idea what's going to come out of it. If you don't get a great idea out of it, you know, you've only lost six minutes, but it's very likely that something will shift because when you create that time and that space and you write just for yourself, it is the act of writing that draws out the ideas. And I think this is one of those secrets that professional writers have always known. You know, they don't hang around waiting for ideas and then go and write them down. <laughs> they sit their bum in the seat and they start writing and there comes the stuff. And that's what I think most people who don't write professionally haven't quite understood.
2: Mm.
0: So you you write a little bit about this, but I make a big difference between the way you talk about exposure writing and journaling. Journaling, as I understand it, is more you wake up in the morning groggy and you just write down stuff or... You just write. It's just writing for writing's sake. It felt for me in your exploratory writing, you're, you're, there's far more intention in the yeah. exploration.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great distinction. And, you know, journaling is a wonderful thing and people do it in different ways. I mean, the, the one you described there is perhaps more like morning pages, which I talk mm. about in the book, Julia Cameron's Process, which is very much about unlocking your creativity. Um, and and powerful, really powerful. And I think a lot of people do journaling almost at the end of the day, you know, three things I'm grateful for. Or bit, but you, you tend to, not so much morning pages, but with journaling, you tend to be writing in a journal, <laughs> hence the name. Mm. And, and therefore, you're kind of censoring yourself in a way, because oh. this is a book that you are keeping on the shelf. Somebody might come upon it one day, you might want to read it other day, you never know, you might publish it one day. And there's a sort of, You want to be proper. You want to get the spelling right. You want to say something profound enough that it it bears reading back on, you know, in a year's Mm. time. Whereas the the two aspects, I think, that are different to journaling for exploratory writing are firstly, yes, I suggest that you start with a prompt and it can basically just bring to the forefront of your mind and and start you write on the paper about whatever is, is there for you right now, whatever it is you're grappling with, that's that you're ruminating on, that you just can't find the solution to? I'm quite a pragmatic person, and I think mm. if you're going to have six minutes out of your day to write, it might as well be in service of something that's going to mm. really, you know, move you forward. Um, and there's also this wonderful mental reflex that we have called instinctive elaboration.
0: Which is, mm. if somebody
1: asks you a question, at some level, you you can't help but start answering it. So, hey, if you're going to have a mental reflex, you might as well use it. So if you start that prompt, that question, it lines your brain up and kind of unleashes it. And and it's amazing what that can do. And then the other big distinction is that I'm saying, by all means, have a journal. By all means, put in that the things that at the end of the process have come out for you. But for that initial part of the process, it's going to be raw. It's going to be messy. You need to be absolutely sure that nobody else is ever going to read this. (laughs) Mm. You don't want to be thinking about choosing the right word or whether you've got the spelling right or where the heck does the apostrophe go. You just want the absolute you know, fast, uncensored freedom of writing down any old how because that isn't the important thing. The important thing is where it takes you. And then you can rip it up and you can put it in the recycling bin.
0: I want to get back to that in a moment, but I, I, I there there's something that kind of piqued me in the wrong way was when you referred to the Orna Ross's free. And one of the E's was exact, mm. which I was like, oh, that's really constraining as opposed to free, raw, easy, you know, I throw it away exact made it feel well, not free at all. That's, that's my, that was really my, that was my feeling.
1: Yeah. What she means by that, and I, I hope I explained it well, but if I haven't, I've done her a disservice, is that it's specific. So if you are, for example, why do I feel so unsettled? You're you're being really specific, you're not just kind of using generalities, you know, or uh, I always do this. You're, you're challenging yourself to pick out where is that feeling in me? How, what does it feel like? When does it happen? Or uh, actually, when, when this thing happened, let's think about What was the sense impression? What did the person actually say? So it's more that sense of digging in and not letting yourself get away with the lazy generalities that I mean by, well, I think that she means by exact. She's using it, of course, Orna Ross, uh, who's the head of Ally, the Association of uh, Independent Authors, is using it in the sense of um, creative writing particularly. But I think it works for exploratory writing too.
0: Well, in, in, in very much in the way you talk about the intentionality. I must say that in the in the in the chapter you talk about the, the neurological aspects of writing, yeah. this instinctive collaboration was the one that was like, whoa, I don't know about that. I didn't I had no that was a real learning for me.
2: Yeah.
0: And I, I very much enjoyed that. So um, writer as I am, um, fountain pens by the dozen, you you definitely say it's about writing with a pen or a pencil on a piece of paper and and you talk about how there is the ability to draw as well as yeah. to write but what about typewriting what where is there is there is there not a, a space for typewriting in this or do you feel that it really has to be the kinetic effort of writing and that we somehow genetically have encoded ourselves for the meaningfulness of pen and hand
1: I don't know about genetically encoded, but there's certainly some neurological stuff that goes on when you when you are kin- kinetically involved in with a pen on paper that doesn't happen so much when you have the interface of a keyboard. So I mean you say typewriter, I don't know how many people actually use a typewriter these days. You know what they really, oh word- <laughs> <I've seen it. laughs> <laughs> really using What they're really using is a word processor. Yeah. yeah. And a word processor has certain marvelous things about it that don't lend themselves well to exploratory writing. They have spelling correction things. Mm. And sometimes the spelling correction thing can't work out what you tried to say because you're typing so fast and so messily. And it's really hard not to go
0: back and correct that,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, which which takes you out of the flow.
0: For those Um, of us who are anal in that category, (laughs) i I I do one.
1: For most people, that little red line, wiggly line is pretty, you know, it's pretty confusing. It's pretty um, distracting is the word. And then the other thing is it's really clean and linear and anything that you type, even in a kind of frenzy of, you know, writing in the most raw, messy way you can, it looks really neat and tidy. (laughs) And it's got a polished, and this is what you're used to seeing in finished documents. And psychologically, there's something a bit jarring about that. Whereas if you're writing on a piece of paper with your pencil or your pen or, you know, whatever comes to hand, back of a fact, pack, whatever it is, there's a provisionality about that. There's There's a sort of, of course, this isn't right. Of course, I can't press send on this. It's early stage thinking. And I think that gives your brain more permission. Uh, to to think more out of the box, to 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 call up the things that you would never say to anybody else, you know, or to, to swear on, you know, whatever it is that you need to do. And yes, as you say, there's also the the brilliant way that you can cross out and you can star things and you can draw. I'm describing it with my hands, which is a complete waste of time on a podcast, but you can sort of draw arrows to connect ideas, and you can. If you're a visual thinker and and it's not working, you can start to draw out what this problem looks like. You know, here's the department, here's the shape of it, and this is what's going on over here. And none of that is easy or frictionless in a Word document, but it is pen on paper. And then, as I say, it's gone. And that's the power of it.
0: Right. So I I, I totally submit to that. I suppose I also love seeing the ink come out of the nib.
1: (laughs) something beautiful about that. There's an agency there, isn't there? This was yeah. blank, and now there's a mark, and you are mark making. And that is a very primitive and powerful human instinct.
0: Yeah, as opposed to I push my button on a right. keyboard that has a letter, and then it magically appears some distance away on a screen, which by the way, is probably clouded with notifications, 16 other tabs, and anything else that can pollute our ability to think for six minutes. Um, well, do you know
1: that that is the other really key thing because very few people have got the discipline to shut everything else down and just have a word document open. They're going to hmm. have the, the email notifications and part of the uh, the reason that exploratory writing is so good for us is that it creates this little window of time and space where we are not hooked up to a device, we're not available for other people to distract us or notify us or ping us. It's mm. our time and our space. And I think that's one of the the ways that you signal that to yourself is by coming offline. And I don't know how much time you spend online a day, Minter. I mean, it's it, I spend more time online than I, I'm sleeping. And that's not good for us as human beings. It's no. not what we were designed for. So even if it's just six minutes, six minutes where it's quite subversive, you know, nobody can track what you're doing. Mm. That feels... Nobody can monetize your attention. I just feel quite subversive these days, doesn't it?
0: The thought police are going to be
1: after you, Alison. (laughs) It's too bad. I've put the stuff in the recycling. They'll never find it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, you you mentioned the 2,316 interactions we have every day, uh, or some study shows that we have on average, that interactions with our iPhone every day. So I went back and I calculated how many seconds that represents of our de- how, what percentage of seconds does that represent if every interaction is just a second and uh, of our waking day and it, it comes out to something like one out of every 12 seconds yeah. which just you know uh,
1: it's staggering my, isn't
0: it mind numbing so we this this is an important point for me uh I'll, <clears throat> I'll, I'll if I come at this from psychedelics or psychedelic assisted therapy there is a an element of doing a trip, and it's a an ephemeral instance, more like a run could be. You, know, you do a run, like you run every day, mm-hmm. notably, and but the psychedelic story, right, I don't do that every day. However, there's a notion of integrating what went on during the trip, so it's hard to actually journal the trip because it's kind of it's really a wide piece of paper with a lot of stuff going on. In this six minute module of writing, then you throw it out. I was wondering to what extent you might ever keep, reread, go back, integrate, because especially when you're wanting to tackle a specific idea, whether it's the town hall exercise or whatever, you, you have so many of these great exercises is there not a place for keeping and rereading or or is rereading scribble impossible
1: (laughs) yeah i the the rereading you you do kind of when you've just finished you go back and you you kind of go whoa, that was a lot of stuff and you kind of pick out a lot of its junk and that's fine because you know you've got to dig through a lot of dirt to get to get to the gold but the, the gold will be there and and then you've got to decide what to do with it. So typically, for me, there'll be one or two things at the end of a writing sprint. Sometimes there's more. There's always at least one um, that I'm like, right, that matters, that's significant. And then you have to decide what to do with it. Often it will go on a to-do list. Um, I'm like, okay, I can do that one action. That's I, I get that. That's that's doable. And there it goes on the to-do list. Sometimes it's less amenable to just putting on a to-do list, and it's more of an insight, and it's more something I want to maybe take into another writing sprint, or discuss with somebody or action. That's when a journal can be great because then you've got a place to capture the stuff that comes out of the writing sprint. But I think it's at that point that you want to be writing it neatly in something that's going to last. Mm. And you need to have gone through, well I need to have gone through the uh the freer, scruffier, more temporary trip of writing beforehand. Mm. You've got questions, we've got answers. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network
0: and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So you have seen many exercises. I want to get to a couple of them afterwards. But one of the things that struck me was knowing how to, and perhaps it goes back to that instinctive collaboration piece, framing the question, getting the nudge that's right. And, and so often in brainstorming sessions, people will even go with the yes-no type of binary approach. Obviously it should be open questions. But how do you how do you what advice do you have in in framing this type of you know movement into a free space of writing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. We're very bad at asking questions generally. We tend to ask of others and ourselves um, Mm -hmm. leading or closed questions. The great thing about setting time aside deliberately for exploratory writing is that it allows you a bit of time and intention around setting that initial question. Mm -hmm. I think we all know what makes a good question, even if we don't always do it. I say in the book, you know, I, if I ask my son when he comes back, "Did you have a good day at school? I mean, you know, I get a grunt and it's fair play to him. It's a rubbish question. So I am quite, when I remember, quite conscious about asking more interesting open questions. You know, what's what's the coolest thing that happened today? You know, mm. something like that, you get a much more interesting answer. So, I think most of us instinctively know the principles of asking good questions. We rarely apply it to ourselves. This is, you know, inquiry, isn't it? It's, 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 mm. it's a great process. It's a really foundational process for for working on yourself and for getting things done in, in an organization. So, choosing something that's forward-looking and open, and as I say, instinctive elaboration means that you're going to start coming up with some answers. So. Finding, I think I use in the book, example, you know, if you say to yourself, why am I so disorganized? That's a, that's a kind of rubbish question. You're going to come up with some really toxic answers to that. But if you turn it to be more positive, more forward looking, more operational, you might say something like, what's one thing that I could do today to be more organized or when, when am I at my most organized or what supports me in becoming more organized? And all of those are questions that are much more likely to lead you to answers that are going to be helpful.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I reflect back on we're good at asking asking questions. I feel actually we're pretty terrible at asking questions. I mean, we may know what they are. I don't know, but you you write about how there are three reasons for doing this, and and the third one I thought was really hit me like a sledgehammer. Says we have an inbuilt tendency to miss what's in front of us and see what we want to see. So uh, this is a flashback to whenever my wife says, you go pick something that's in the fridge. And I go to the fridge and they inevitably never see it. And then she, aggravated, irritated, she gets up, goes to the fridge and says that it was right in front of you, you idiot. So somehow I didn't want to see it or something. But it, <laughs> it, it, coming back to the questions that we ask, maybe many of these questions are not so obvious to us or... I, I, I you know, personally, I went through the exercise of thinking, well, what sort of question am I going to ask myself here? So the blank sheet of the blank sheet I was like, all right, well all right. how do you get into the things that are are disturbing you or that you that you can then approach through your exploratory writing?
1: Well, there's a, there's a list of prompts at the back of the book for people who genuinely have no idea where to start. So you know, use those; they're they're great places to start. Um, but you know, if you've ever been coached or you've done any kind of coaching work or training, essentially, what you're doing with exploratory writing is becoming your own coach. So mm. a coaching question: Michael Bungo Stanyer says, "You know, what's what's on your mind?" Is is the kind of the the great uh, opening question? So, what's on my mind today? You know that. That in itself is going to open up stuff. And it kind of, I don't want you to get, I don't want anybody to get too hung up on the question that they set themselves because it Mm. is just a way of getting started. It's a jumping off point. And as I say in the book, it might be miles away from where you land and that's okay. There is Mm. no obligation. This is not an exam where you have to, you know, read the question and make sure you've answered it in all three parts. Mm. It's just a way of getting started. And then once you're started, the writing has a life and momentum of its own, it can take you somewhere you never thought you'd go. And that's completely fine too. So in a sense, it doesn't really matter where you start as long as it is a start that's open enough and curious enough to start opening things up rather than closing them down or making you defensive or any kind of negative thing that's going to shut this down and and go into sort of self-blame or negative self-talk rather than curiosity, which, as I say, is one of those kind of, if you're going to be an explorer, the foundation of that is being curious about the world. And, and that's, I think, the best frame of mind in which to approach it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I was enjoying that aspect when you write about the mindset of the adventurer. And 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 here's a funny thing. I, I talk about the mindset of a great leader. And I used an acronym, C-H-E-C-K. And first one, C, curiosity h humility e empathy and all three of which you write about yeah. but the other so you had four for the adventure curiosity humility adaptability and humor and I it's rare that we really talk about humor I'd say certainly in a business context so give us a little bit more about why humor is useful in this
1: I think it keeps you in a really playful place if you're open to being funny with yourself. Uh, the great thing about exploratory writing, of course, is that, um, you know, sometimes our humour is really inappropriate and we have to kind of keep it away because we don't offend people. If nobody's reading this, you can go with it. And, and that's that's helpful, too. You don't need to worry about, you know, self-censoring. Uh, but if you are able to see humour in even really awful situations, we know from all the research that's been done on resilience that that's a really powerful tool that our minds can use to help us process experience, help us survive experience and come out the other side stronger. So I think humour is really important. Um, I, I don't mean you should sort of you know sit down and tell yourself jokes for six minutes, but don't knock down the humour where where you find it um celebrate it and if you're pushing through something really difficult really challenging something that feels deeply uncomfortable if you can find a moment of humor it's incredible how much energy that can give you and how much easier it makes that task feel
0: so here i am listening to you and thinking in business and in writing books humor because, as you were just in, in, well, implying, a sense of humor can be at the expense of somebody, or it right. can be taken the wrong way. And and I, so, as a publisher, I was just wondering where does humor come in when oh, people are writing books?
1: Yeah, it's so tricky because obviously, if you if you are funny, genuinely funny. It makes a book so engaging and readable and it makes people like you. And when people like you as the author, they're going to stick with you. And, you know, that that's all great. It's like comedians, isn't it? You know, lots of people like getting up on stage and telling jokes. Not all of them are very funny. No. So I think if you are not naturally good at doing humor in a book, then you need to – What I think the, the one bit of advice I would give you is – get someone to check this over someone you can trust someone who is not afraid to tell you if, if it's coming across as cringy or clumsy or even offensive um like getting up and telling jokes on stage it, it can be an edgy business so if it's done well brilliant but it's so often done poorly but um you know in exploratory writing it don't matter that's indeed a great <laughs> indeed so um
0: uh, another general question. I want to get into a couple of specifics afterwards. Um, writing the book for you was clearly not exploratory. I mean, I mean, it is at some level, but really, it's not in the same vein. What did you learn from writing the book? Oh, a wonderful question.
1: You're right. The the end product, the book, it is not an output of a single exploratory writing session. But almost everything in there began. In an exploratory writing session. So I think of it as a as a two by two matrix, because I think of the whole of life as a two by two matrix. But you know, down at the sort of bottom left where you are just talking to yourself and you aren't very clear about what it is you're saying, that to me is the domain of exploratory writing. And then up at the top right, when you've got much more clarity about what it is you're saying and you're ready to go public to people who've never met you before, then that's is a sort of expository form of, of writing. And that's where the book sits. But along the way, you know, you're doing things like you're keeping stuff to yourself, but you're going deeper. And that might be an iterative series of exploratory writing sprints or a, a longer form piece of writing that you do to, to take this itch of an insight that you've got and, and really dig into it and expand it and do some research. And that on the other sort of matrix, when you are um less clear, but you're involving other people. You've got that kind of engagement piece where you're sitting down with other people, perhaps around the, you know, we do a virtual campfire every Friday and you're going, yeah, I've got this idea. And how, what do you think about this? And and bringing other people into that as well is really important. So there's, diff- I think, you know, we say writing, like it's one thing. Writing is like a 500 different things. And very often it looks a lot like staring out the window or going for a run, you know, because it's got this, it's difficult work you are making what john Hawkins calls invisible work you know you're making what's in your head what you don't even quite understand yourself Mm
0: -hmm. into
1: something that other people you've got that amazing ability of of books to become little kind of portals into somebody else's brain at a completely different time in a completely different place Mm -hmm. and and there's a lot of steps to go through on the way there and a lot of false starts and iterations and, and reconfigurations of the structure of the book in my case and all that kind of good stuff. And it's all good because you don't go from idea to finished product in one hit, not with anything that's worth reading.
0: So just to go back to the matrix or what I was understanding of the two by two, uh, you must've worked at BCG. One, so one angle <laughs> is uh, clarity somehow. And the other uh, axis is more about number of people. privacy me 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 to more and then the other one is messy to clear
2: yeah exactly that's what
0: i was intuiting um and then through the writing of the book what you were you were talking about the iterativeness of the your process what would be the thing that maybe surprised you the most what was the you know that came out of it like whoa i didn't expect that
1: (laughs) i'm not sure this is quite answering your question but it was certainly the, the biggest shock in a sense is that the table of contents that I originally had didn't work and I knew mm. it wasn't working. And and it was causing me real frustration and uh, angst and, and a, a resentment almost of mm. the book and I couldn't fix it. And I do this for other people all the time, Minter. I am so mm. good at helping other people uncover structures mm. and put their ideas into a really, um, strong, um, process or structural, you know, system that, that allows other people to grab a hold of them. And it was killing me that I couldn't do it for myself. And I actually reached out to one of the development editors in the practical inspiration team and said, look, I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but I need help. And I sent it to her and she was like, okay, it's really, there's lots of good stuff, but it's not working. I was like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. And she suggested uh, a different structure Interestingly, it it wasn't actually the structure that I in, that went with in the end, but it enabled me to find it. It was mm. the stepping stone that got me there. And that was a real learning. Um, it, it was a real, you know, humble pie moment, because mm. how ridiculous that I can't do this for myself when I can do it for other mm. people. It was a real learning. Um, it was a real lesson in the value of reaching out uh, of getting other people's fresh eyes on the thing asking for help asking for help exactly and also in my own ability to to take something to take some feedback to take some ideas and having got unstuck to bring it to a new place and I'm very happy with the way it is now but yeah it was not easy getting there
0: yeah break to rebuild it sounded like yeah well I, I think that that you know, I love the idea of introducing vulnerability somehow into that, because to ask for help is to suggest you're not perfect, is to suggest you don't know everything. And, well, hallelujah, that is is the reality of our situation, and hence the interesting elements of humility and curiosity. So your book is, I must say, that at the beginning when I read the book, I was like, huh. This is just gonna be about free-flowing writing. And so I, little by little, of course, I got into the weeds and the, and the strength of your book and really understood the concepts of how, how to use this idea of six minutes to, to, to liberate yourself. <clears throat> there are a couple of exercises that really struck out for me. And one of them was the empathy exercise, mm-hmm. actually a topic of great interest for me. Uh, I'd love for you to describe you, you, the way you wrote about this, it's, it's an imaginative, imaginative leap, and the sense making of storytelling. Yeah. So empathy exercise. Tell us more.
1: So I guess I mean you you know that wonderful book surrounded by idiots. You know so often we're just like
0: why are they being so annoying? Wow oh,
1: how why did they react like that? Um, but we're not really asking ourselves. We're just you know, carping at, at them. And if you have an important relationship that is being tricky, or if you are unsettled by a prickly response that you didn't expect, or and you don't understand what's behind it, we ha- we have this attribution bias. So when we are snappy to someone, or we don't answer a question properly, and, and we just you know if we're rude to someone, we 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 understand why that was. We were stressed. We were in a rush. You know, there was all these situational factors that uh, stopped us being the polite, kind, generous person that we deep down are. We don't apply that to other people. We go, wow, what a rude person, or, you know, I can't believe they're so annoying. So in a sense, it's a mind game, as, as all of exploratory writing is really. But it, it's just, if you take the time and trouble to put yourself in the other person's shoes. This is a total work of fiction. You have no way of knowing what's on their mind, what their experience has been that morning, you know, but just the act of becoming them imaginatively for a little while can help you see things in their perspective, can help you apply that attribution bias in their favor for a change and might also uncover what it was you did or said that was so triggering for them what's the, the need that, that they aren't fulfilling, you know, in this interaction or what, what's most important to them. And that can be really helpful. And you have to absolutely bring all your humility to it and understand that you haven't solved this person's psyche in your exercise, but just the act of doing it allows you to see other possibilities To understand things a little better from their perspective. And that can only be a good thing in a relationship.
0: No doubt. There's a, you know, I've written a book about empathy and and there's a topic of, it's called close communication bias, which is that you tend to, the closer you are, think that you know. Yeah. And, and for example, you'll finish the sentences or you just, you have this, preloaded expectation of what's gonna happen all the time. And that will trigger and then things can sour because we're not allowing, we're not listening actually to one another. So I I thought the empathy exercise was really fun. The other one that really struck me was the town hall exercise. Mm -hmm. And um, you wrote a, that well, actually you quoted uh, with this, uh, and I like this idea of, of talking about dialogue. Once we start getting into dialogue and practicing that, we find that there are many characters in there. And our job is to be the integrating force, the CEO that draws all the voices into union, does a kind of town hall meeting, if you like. And once you start engaging with those different voices, which I think writing really helps us do, you find that you can get much more creative solutions. So, I I mean, I I really enjoyed that whole idea. I mean, having lived through town halls in business, You know what that looks like and having the gumption to allow any questions to be asked which so frequently is not the case because people censor or you know preload the questions and such tell us about the town hall exercise if Mm. you would
1: well, what you just quoted there is from Megan Hayes, who was one of my podcast guests on the Extraordinary Business Book Club. She wrote The art, uh, the Joy of Writing Things Down, and she's done lots of research on writing and happiness. So it, it's a great quote. And I, I, I thought I'd, I, you know, give a hat tip to her for the phrase because it's such a useful one. But I think, again, we have this kind of illusion that we are one person, one voice, one response to a situation. And actually, if you allow yourself time and space to to bring those other kind of voices on the stage you find there's lots of different act- uh, reactions going on. And I use the example of if you're asked to do a presentation, you know, fear might be the most dominant voice and, and you might go, absolutely not. You know, I'd rather pull my fingernails out or, you know, whatever. Um, but actually, if you think about the different aspects of you, there, there's um there's a researcher perhaps in you. What, what's their view on this? Have they got some ideas about how you might cover this? Uh, there's probably a leader in you or an emerging leader how could this be an opportunity for you to create a role for yourself in the company? So allowing the most dominant voice to speak first, because it always will, and you know, generally it's fear and it has to have its say. So that's fine. You know, you're never going to get rid of it. You might as well just let it kind of sputter to a to grind to a halt. And at that point, bring out these alternative ways of looking at the situation and explicitly acknowledge to yourself. That Walt Whitman thing, isn't it? You know, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And we do each one of us, you know we we think about the thing the same thing, differently at different times of the day. Does that depending on how resourced we are or how much coffee we've drunk, you know, so really leaning into that and finding a more helpful response or a more interesting reaction is is a really powerful thing to do because it gives you that sense of of agency that sense that in any situation there are parts of you that are more resourced to deal with this and they might not be the loudest parts
0: yeah it's this notion of the white page story because if you sort of just fill it with black and fear then you can't write on top of that but fortunately there's more space space. on your page Uh, yeah it made me think of this notion of conversation in general how I was, um, I've I've asked a, a writer, a friend of mine, a fiction writer, to explain how to write dialogue between two people. So one person who's writing two people's voices, in this case, that have a contrary opinion. So how do you avoid having your opinion be the dominant opinion when you're trying to have this balanced conversation? And then the other thing which was interesting, which relates into a lot of what you're talking about, which is that actually in real life, our conversations are decidedly messy, <laughs> uh, are, are not at all following any linearity. And uh, this shit goes goes backwards and forwards and upside down, and then you come back to it later, and then you trigger another story, and that story triggers a story. And, and just like in your in your process somehow, you may start at one place and end up in a totally different place. And I really felt like somehow, like these multiple voices – that we're talking about and and how conversation isn't just this perfect word processed piece of dialogue but it is a messy process and i felt like it kind of really parallels this sort of human way that we think and interact
1: yeah Yeah. and and what's wonderful about writing as a as a strand of activity amongst all of that because it's all good of course but when we're thinking and when we're speaking it's gone it's here and it's gone and then the next word comes and and there's no way of well i mean you can record of course but you know essentially it's it, 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 there's only one thing in front of you at any one time when you write it's kind of a way of unspooling the thread in a way that means you can retrace your steps come back to the topic if you've lost yourself it makes the path visible
0: mm.
1: and that's enormously helpful because it it is that first step to getting everything out of the hot mess of your brain (laughs) into a form that you can see and process and select from and in time turn into something fit for human consumption
0: making the invisible visible Mm. Allison Jones a lovely chat thank you so much for coming on thanks for doing this i think it's a, a really useful tool your book is laden with great tools and and ideas how to uh, how to how to do it and, and 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 6 minutes a day shit we can all do that so exactly. it's, it's it's practical and realistic how how can people get your book when can they get it pre order it and how would you like anyone else to follow or track you down, or whatever you'd like. Okay,
1: let me unpack those 16 questions. So the book is available wherever you buy your books. Um, it's available for pre-order at the moment as we speak, but of course it will be published, uh, in, the e-book will be published on the 12th of December and the paperback on the 13th of December. And yes, the same pre-order anywhere. And if you want to find out more about me, more about the book, you can look at exploratorywriting.com, which will take you to a page on my site, alisonjones.com, um, if you want to find out more about the extraordinary business book club and the podcast, many of which of those com- many of those conversations went into the book, that's uh, extraordinary business book club podcast. Um, and then there's Practical Inspiration Publishing, which is the publishing house that is publishing the book. And uh, take a look for some brilliant books there as well.
0: Fabulousness, Alison. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minter. It's been so much fun. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show. Would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 or more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish. Here's a song I wrote, Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger. Anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying. I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competitions in a convinced man in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle with deceit. Live for the challenge, so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? Finds a convinced man In the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man Put me to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for arrest. I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman of a woman
0: join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcasts.